Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24, beginning in verse 1. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up twelve stone pillars representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commands I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Now we've come a long way in our journey of the covenants from the creation of the world to tonight considering Moses, the covenant of law. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you will be our teacher and instructor and that you will give us the Torah, the law of God, that we may understand it and may rejoice, that we may say with all our hearts, Oh, how love I thy law. 
It is my meditation all the day. Deliver us, O gracious Father, from the ways in which man would draw us away from your truth and the permanence of your law, that we might understand how right is the truth that you have given us and how liberating is the law that you have provided. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. Now this evening we consider Moses, the covenant of law. One of the things that you run into when you begin to think of this particular covenant is controversy. For there is always controversy surrounding the law. What is the thing that man ought to do? Is there such a thing as a permanent guide that God has given for his people? And when you consider the law of God, you end up seeing extremes develop. On the one hand, you have the libertine, and he will say, oh no, we are not under law. We are freed from the bondage that the law would bring to our lives. We have the new liberty of the spirit, and no kind of law ever should bind us. On the other hand, you have the legalist, and the legalist manifests himself in many ways. He tries to bind people even beyond what the law of God says. You have, even within those who would try to find a balance between the new covenant and the old, great differences of opinion with respect to how the law that was given in in Moses' day applies to us under the new covenant. We know friends that are Seventh-day Adventists, and they have a certain perspective on the law of God. They are convinced in their consciences that those laws with respect to dietary principles are to be observed in the 20th century today. They are convinced, as a matter of fact, that the seventh day is to be the day of our observance of, of the fourth commandment rather than the first day of the week. We have another group of Christians, perhaps you've read about them in recent days, called the Theonomist. Who are these people? from within our own number of Presbyterians in the 20th century. There is a group of those who say, not so much the ceremonial law, but the civil law of Moses is binding on the Christian today. So that, as a matter of fact, Washington and our legislators need to bring all the laws of this nation under the civil laws that were given by Moses during his experience at Sinai. Now that's a complex picture, and that's just one side of the thing. But as we look at the covenant of law, we need to recognize that we are wrestling with many problems and many large questions that have very practical effect on your life. And one thing we want to do just briefly is to look at at the place of the Mosaic Covenant of Law in what may be called modern biblical criticism. The place of the Mosaic Covenant of Law in modern biblical criticism. Now, if any of you have been in a religious course in a university or know a friend that has been caught up or a son, perhaps, that has taken a religious course in a university, you've heard of a man named Julius Wellhausen. Who was this man, Julius Wellhausen, 
And when did he work? Well, he worked about a hundred years ago in Germany, and Julius Wellhausen had a certain theory about the law of Moses. His theory was based on the philosophy of evolution. It's very interesting to see how those large philosophies that man adopt come and have their bearing even in the study of the Bible. And as Julius Wellhausen read the Bible, he said, now we know that the simplest expressions of religion must come first, and the more complex expressions of religion must come later. Now, he's basing that on the fact that religion has its origins totally and completely within man's quest for God rather than God's revelation for man. And so he concluded that you must start with the prophetic words first and the law later. Now, that's just the reverse of what you have in the Bible. The Bible begins with the law of God in the, books of, in the book of Exodus, in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible, the full exposure of the will of God as it is found in the law of Moses. And the prophets, according to the Bible's chronology, come later to interpret and apply that law to the lives of men. Now, Julius Wellhausen said, no, you have a, an evolution of religion in the Bible. And you can see that evolution by various documents that actually have been confused and scrambled up in the Bible. So you start first with a J document, and that refers to the Jehovist, to the man who uses the name of God, Jehovah. And it's the simplest of religions. And then you go to the Elohist, the E document. And that's a little more complex, a little more theology there. And then you come to the book of Deuteronomy. That's the D document, the Deuteronomist. And finally, you come to the very elaborate development of the law in the P document or the priestly document. And all of that evolution started in about the 8th or 9th century B.C. and ran into the 5th or 6th century B.C. And that's what you have in the Bible as over against having a revelation that has come from God. Now, in that context, where did Julius Wellhausen place the book of Deuteronomy? He placed Deuteronomy in 622 B.C. and the 18th year of the reign of King Josiah. You remember that good King Josiah was interested in a reformation, in a reforming of the people. And in the process of that reformation, good King Josiah discovered the law book in the temple. Now, Julius Wellhausen, he said, Josiah and his friends didn't discover that law of Moses. They wrote the law of Moses. In order to give some strength, some punch of power and authority, they went in a secret place and they composed the law of Moses. And then they put Moses' signature on it. So that everyone would say, oh, this is an ancient law. It's been buried in the rubble of our temple all of these years. And now here we've got to do according to this law. But you know, Julius Wellhausen's theory wasn't really so worried about the development of law. He calls the placing of the dating of Deuteronomy as the fulcrum of his whole theory of the evolution of religion. That was a part of it, the idea of the development of man's religion. 
But a thing that was right at the heart of Julius Fellhausen's philosophy also was that in the book of Deuteronomy, as well as in the book of Leviticus, you have not only law, but you have also prophecy. You have a prediction a thousand years before Israel ever goes into captivity and returns from captivity, that that's what's going to happen. And Julius Wellhausen, being a naturalist, rather than a, theo- than a theist, couldn't possibly believe that a man could write a thousand years before something happened exactly what was going to happen. So how could he explain the writing of this material? Well, he had to say, well, it must have been written, even though it's in the book of Leviticus, even though it's in the book of Deuteronomy, it must have been written in the time that these events occurred rather than in the words and in the language and by the hand of Moses and by the hand of God. Now that is the critical view of the law of God. It's a naturalistic view. And of course, going along with that is the conclusion that this law of God, having originated from man rather than from God, can be accepted or rejected. We can decide that we wish to keep the law of God or we can decide to bypass the law of God. What is your thought about the law of God? Do you see it as something that is divinely revealed? Do you understand that the law of God is something that cannot be explained as having any other origin but having come directly and immediately from God? Modern man man with all his scientific knowledge tries to develop a theory to explain the origin of the perfect law of God. But no theory of man can explain its origins. Now since Julius Wellhausen wrote a hundred years ago, the situation has changed a little bit. And it's changed in part from archaeology. What has been found since the days of Julius Wellhausen is the Code of Hammurabi. And there you can see some laws that in some respects are similar to the laws of the Bible, but obviously date well before the 7th century B.C., as Wellhausen would have suggested. That was a piecemeal relocation of parts of the Mosaic Law, But now you have a very interesting thing having developed. It's what might be called a theological tug-of-war. For as a matter of fact, what you have now is the discovery recently in archaeology of large documents that have a pattern that follows very closely the pattern of the book of Deuteronomy. These are international treaties, numbers of them, that follow step by step according to the materials that are found in the book of Deuteronomy. And they date all the way back to the 12th and 14th centuries B.C., all the way back to the time of Moses, to the time of his living. And these are called the Hittite treaties. And so now, all of a sudden, you can't explain the origins of the book of Deuteronomy simply from a naturalistic development, you can see that even back in those times, there was thinking that followed at least the pattern of the book of Deuteronomy. At the same time, more recent biblical theologians have seen that in the book of Deuteronomy 
is a pattern of morality and a pattern of teaching that corresponds very closely to the theology of the book of Joshua through Kings that goes all through the history of Israel. It's as though Deuteronomy were, were the head and the book of Joshua through, the, through Kings were the body that unfold the significance of the law of God in Israel's history. So what you have now is a different scene than, the, than that in the days of Julius Wellhausen. Today you have the critics, critical scholars themselves recognizing that there are many forces pulling the book of Deuteronomy all the way back to the time of Moses. And at the same time you have the theology of the book of Deuteronomy corresponding to the books of Samuel and Kings and running all the way through the history of Israel. We could hope, we could wish that God, not just through these arguments of the archaeologists, but through the working of his spirit, would make modern man recognize that the book of Deuteronomy was written just as the scriptures present it in the days of Moses. And it was a prophetic book that described almost perfectly to a letter the history of Israel as it unfolded, unfolded for the next thousand years. That's our faith. That's what we believe because that's what the word of God attests. We don't have to try to explain away the accuracy of the book of Deuteronomy as it anticipates the thousand years of history that unfolded from the time of Moses. And we don't have to explain away the elaborate development of law as it is found in the book of Deuteronomy. For it was a revelation that came from God on the mountain, the perfections of the will of God revealed for men. Now as you look at the ebb and flow of the tide of attitudes toward the law of God. Don't get taken up in this or that little cult or this or that little erroneous perspective. Look at it from the full perspective of the revelation of God and rejoice in the law of God that has been given. Now that's so much with respect to an introduction of the law of God as it is seen in the minds of many people in the world today. Now we want to go and look a little more specifically at the theological significance of the Mosaic Covenant. The theological significance of the Mosaic Covenant. Now you understand that as we move from Abraham to Moses, we're moving from simplicity to complexity. We're moving from a single man moving about as a wandering nomad by himself and his wife, God speaking to him here and there on rare occasions with years in between. Just a few words, and that was enough for Abraham. But now you move into a day in which you've got a nation of perhaps three million people. You've got all sorts of complexities that are involved in their way of life and how they're going to relate to one another. And corresponding to that, you have a new era in God's dealings with his people. We like the simplicity. The heart and the core are there in the Abrahamic covenant. 
But as you well know, life also has its complexities, all sorts of difficulties in understanding exactly what the will of God is for our life. Now, as we look at the theological significance of the Mosaic Covenant, first of all, it's very important to realize that covenant is a larger idea than law. Covenant is a larger idea than law. The simplicity is always there. The heart and the core is always there. And you can always return to that when you study the Bible. I shall be your God and you shall be my people. That is the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. And that is the heart of the Mosaic covenant as well. I shall be your God. You shall not be lost in the complexities of life. For the simple is there. God is to be your God. And you are to be his people. Now you can see that the idea of covenant is larger than the specifics of law, both in the old and the Hittite treaties that were there in the time of Moses, and also in the Mosaic covenant itself. For when God came to give the law to Moses, Israel was already in that covenant relationship. They were already bound with him as individuals and as families and as a nation. Because I am the God of the covenant who, brought, who, who promised to Abraham to give to him this land, I'm coming to you. And in the context of the Exodus, before the Ten Commandments are given, you remember that it is in the context of the Exodus that the Ten Commandments are given. What is the preface to the Ten Commandments? The summary of the law of God? I am the Lord your God who have brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Therefore, you shall honor your father and your mother. Therefore, you shall not covet. You see, the law is encased within the larger concept of the covenant. Now, what is the distinctiveness of the Mosaic covenant? As we talked about the progression of these covenants, we saw that the seed begins to unfold and to develop into a larger tree that ultimately bears great fruit. And each one of these covenants, as they move through the progression of history, has its own contribution to make to our understanding of our relationship to God. What is distinctive about the Mosaic Covenant? Well, it may be described simply as an externalized summation of the will of God. What is distinctive about the Mosaic Covenant? It is that in that covenant, God has provided for his people a summation of his will, a boiling down of all that God wants of man to do in a very short compass. You know, it's amazing when you think about it. You look at the Ten Commandments, those ten words. They have stood the test of time. They have been confirmed constantly by the revelation of God as that which summarizes all that God wants you to do in those Ten Commandments is the perfect, balanced summation of all that he wants us to do as his people. Now it's called here an externalized summation of the will of God because there is an emphasis on the fact that all during the law of Moses there were external outward rituals and forms and types and shapes as the way to teach the spiritual truths that God wanted to communicate. 
And that externalization of the will of God for his people is manifested even in the way in which the law is given. We rejoice that in the new covenant, the law is written in our hearts. In the old covenant, the law, the same law of God, was written on tablets of stone. And those big, large, heavy tablets that Moses bore were symbolic of the externalized form of the law of God, of the fact that this was not the end of God's revelation concerning his law, that the law was there, that it was true, that it is unchangeable because it is the ten words. They are the perfections of the will of God as manifested for his people. And yet at the same time, the form, the form of that revelation had grave and serious limitations. It's just as when you're raising your child, and this is the illustration that Paul the Apostle uses, when your teenage child is on the way to school, you might let him use the car, you might not let him use the car. You might say, well, you can drive straight to school and straight back home, but don't go anywhere else. That's an externalized limitation because that child, that young person, I should say without insulting the teenage person. The young person is, is a grown-up in some respects, but he's still growing in other respects also. And so it was with the law of God. It was given in an externalized form. But the ten words were identified with the covenant. There are places in the book of Exodus and places in the book of Deuteronomy where the scripture says, this is my covenant even the ten words. Now there's something about law that people don't like. There's something about law that people don't like. It's probably something of that innate sense of, I want to be my own Lord and Master. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. But you need to recognize that the ten words the Ten Commandments are not the Ten Suggestions. They're not the Ten Proposals. They are the Ten Commandments. Now, why did God give these Ten Commandments? What is it that we have in these Ten Commandments? We have an externalized manifestation of the will of God for our lives. God is unveiling his own nature in the Ten Commandments. What is the source of the Ten Commandments? Well, God didn't just sit up in heaven and flip a coin. I think I'll command them to do this. Or I think maybe it'd be good if man did that. No, out of his very essence as, as God, out of what he was, he manifested and revealed himself to man in the Ten Commandments. God says you shall not make an idol, because God in his nature does not have a body. And he's not to be represented in that form. God says you have to have no other gods besides me. Why? Because there are no other gods besides him. God says thou shalt not kill because he is the source of life. God says remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy because he rested on the seventh day and blessed and sanctified and hallowed that day. God says you shall not covet because God is the perfect manifestation of contentment. Out of the essence of God himself, 
these ten words were developed. You should rejoice. You should give thanks for the manifestation of the will of God found in the Ten Commandments. And you should realize that ultimately those Ten Commandments find their perfect manifestation in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He came to keep the law of God perfectly. He never violated a single one of those commandments. And in order to maintain the integrity of God, the giver of those Ten Commandments, He died on the cross because of your violation of those Ten Commandments. We should look with thanksgiving, not only at the Ten Words, but at the personification of those Ten Words, the perfection of those Ten Words in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we should praise Him as the source and the fulfiller of the Ten Commandments. Can you with all your heart sing as we sang earlier this evening, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Let us pray. We come, O gracious Heavenly Father, and ask that you will help us in a day in which men would seek their own ways rather than the way of God. We ask that you will help us, O merciful Father, to know your will and to do it. Develop in us that natural response of desiring to do your will because we've been made new creatures in Jesus Christ. Give to us an encouragement that you are the perfect God and Christ your Son is the perfect manifestation of your law. Give to each one of us that capacity to reflect the order and the rightness that you have established in the world that you have made. For we ask in Christ's name, amen.